I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 35 through 51. We're going to close out John 1 as we kicked off this series a few weeks ago entitled, That You May Believe. We are walking through the gospel of John. The reason why we entitled it that you might believe is because that is the purpose of this book. John, the apostle John, the disciple of John, uh, one of the inner three in Jesus' circle of disciples, writes this gospel and he says the purpose in John 20, which is that you, that me, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That that is the purpose of this book, is that we would believe that. That we would believe that in terms of our salvation. That Jesus lived a perfect life, died a perfect death for our sin, rose again three days later. So that if you put your trust in Jesus Christ's perfection, not in the good that you can do. That you put your trust in Jesus' payment for your sin and mine through his death on the cross. And that he rose again three days later, showing that Almighty God approved of Jesus' life and death on your behalf, if that is you today, then Jesus is your Savior. That is why Jesus came, is that you would believe that first and foremost. But here's what we oftentimes miss, that you would also believe that Jesus is not just the Savior of your soul and your sins, as amazing and as good news as that is, and I don't minimize that in any way, but that you today would believe that Jesus is also the savior of your circumstances. Whatever you're going through today, whatever you are walking through, whether it started years ago, whether it started last week, whether it started this morning when you got up, and it's testing you to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I want you to know that as we walk through this book, the purpose of it is so that we would believe that Jesus is our savior for our souls and our sin, past, present, and future, Yes, but that Jesus is also who he says he is in every moment of our lives that we live here on this earth. So I'm going to read actually verses 35 through 51, and we're going to read this entire passage of scripture. As I read out loud, I want you to follow along with me. If you don't have a Bible, it's also on the screen. If you're watching us online, you don't have a Bible, it'll be on your screen. And then we're just going to walk through this and unpack this passage of scripture that we're looking at today. So look at John 1, verse 35. If you're there, say you're there. Awesome. Look at verse 35. The next day, again, John, now this is John the Baptist. Remember, we looked last week at John the Baptist. John was standing with two of his disciples. So there were people that were following John the Baptist. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now we've seen that John the Baptist, this is something that he says often, and here he says it again, verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So two of John the Baptist's disciples hear John the Baptist say this of Jesus, and now they start following him. Verse 28, Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour, so around four in the afternoon. 
One of the two who heard Jesus speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So here's what you need to understand as we just are just in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. John never refers to himself in his Gospel. He always says the other disciple or something like that. So the Apostle John, the one that wrote this, is one of the two disciples with Andrew. So John and Andrew are the two disciples who are following John the Baptist that are now beginning to follow Jesus. Verse four, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him, Simon, to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Verse 43, he decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now here's what I just want you to know. Like, I did have the privilege to go to Israel a few years ago, and Nazareth ain't a great place still today. Like, it's not, it's not, obviously not gotten any better. But Philip said to him, I love Philip's response, we're going to talk about this here in a little bit. Come and see. Let's not get in an argument, just come and see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, whom is there, whom, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, I just find this funny to me. I don't know if I have a weird sense of humor. Some would say yes who know me, but Jesus says this, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? Like that's all it took? He says, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, if you have our reading plan, you know that we have you read the passage of Scripture that we're talking about today. You've already read this. So we actually have you read a week ahead of time on purpose so that you can see for yourselves what God has to say to you and you're not relying on whoever's up here on the stage. So if you were like me and you first read this passage of scripture, you're like verse 51, you're like, what is this idea of angels, you know, the heavens are open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So evidently most commentators believe that Nathaniel, when he was under that fig tree, was probably reading something in the Bible that he had at the time in the Old Testament, something about Jacob. Because Jesus yells out to him and says, Jacob, you're a man, or, or Nathaniel, you're a man of Israel in whom there is no deceit. And in the story of Jacob, Jacob, unfortunately, is a person that is full of deceit. And Jacob also has this dream as he's sleeping on a rock as his pillow of this idea of this staircase where angels are coming up and down. So that's the reason most people believe why Jesus uses this analogy, this reference to Jacob, in case you were wondering. Here's what I want you to see today before I give it to you. Here's the title of the message this morning if you're taking notes. Come and see. 
I don't know about you, but I, when I first read through the book of John in my own time with the Lord months ago, and even as I read it again this past week, just following along the reading plan as you are, one of the things that stuck out to me were those two words, come and see, because it's mentioned so much in these verses from verse 35 through 51. So here's the idea that I want you to get today that we're just going to unpack is this, that Jesus is inviting you to come and see that he is worth following. That's what Jesus is doing. I mean, our lives in following Jesus, as we used to use our definition of abide, walking hand in hand with Jesus as he leads the way, that's part of what we're making, part of the foundation of our discipleship culture here is abiding. You already heard how we're doing that in Salem Kids. We're doing the same with you through the tools and through the, through the um, make and mobilize journal that you can, that many of you have gotten, like, like abiding with Jesus, walking hand in hand with him as he leads the way. They're part of abiding is accepting this invitation that Jesus wants to spend time with you. He wants to spend time with me. And when I look at this passage of scripture, understanding that's Jesus' desire for my life and for your life, what is he inviting me to do today? As we talk about this passage of scripture, man, he wants me to come and see that he is worth following. That phrase, come and see, in the Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in, literally has this idea, to move closer in in order to have a view of the character of something or someone. It's like literally moving in and saying, I want to take a closer look at this to see what its makeup is, to see what its substance is, to see if it's really legit. That's the idea of come and see. And when we think about Jesus being worth following, here's what sometimes is the hiccup for us. Here's sometimes what the barrier is, if we want to use that phrase, is that we oftentimes get caught up into thinking that we've got to get our life together before we start following Jesus. Some of you are stuck right now in that type of thinking. And you're thinking, yes, I know I need to follow him, but I gotta get this right and I gotta get this fixed and I gotta do this and I gotta do that. And so, yes, he's worth following, but right now I'm too jacked up in my mind to believe that Jesus thinks I'm worth following him. And what you're gonna see today is that is not from the Lord, that's a lie of the enemy. Well, that may not be true of you, maybe this is true of you, is that you think to yourself, man, every time I think of following Jesus, I think of what it costs me. I think of how I've suffered. I think of how I've been disappointed. I think about how I've been let down. I think about the struggle that it is to believe that Jesus really delivers on what he promises. And so when I think about following Jesus, all I ever think about is what it costs me. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus isn't threatened by that either. I mean, does Jesus say, he says this in Matthew, that if someone's gonna follow him, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. Do we encounter suffering in this world? Absolutely. Does it cost something to follow Jesus? Absolutely. But what we're gonna look at today is what makes it worth it. What makes it worth it? 
Because if you're like me, and I've been in that same situation where I'm just overwhelmed and thinking, Jesus, I know I'm supposed to follow you, but all I seem to be faced with is what it's costing me. That what Jesus wants me to also remember today is what it's worth, the value of it, the joy of it, the significance of it, the security of it, the salvation of it, is that Jesus really is worth following. And our life is a life of coming and seeing. Where Jesus isn't threatened, he's not offended by your unbelief. He just wants you to open your eyes and come and see. And so what I wanna do this morning is I wanna give you four reasons that Jesus is worth following from these verses that we just read. Here's the first one. He's worth following, why? Because he's your savior. That's emphasized in verses 35 through 37. Notice what John the Baptist says of Jesus. He's got two of his disciples standing there next to him. And what John says as Jesus passes by is he says, hey guys, behold, the Lamb of God. Earlier he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in the verses that we looked at last week. What does John do? He reminds his disciples, John and Andrew, that there is the person that's worth following. There is the person who is your Savior. There is the person who is the epitome of everything that you've done up to this point by going to the temple and making a sacrifice to show you that you're not good enough, that you're your good cannot overcome God's standard of perfection and something has to be paid for your sin. And there is the epitome of that. There is the one who has been promised from the beginning of time in Genesis 3. There he is, guys. Jesus is your savior. He's the one that's worth following. You know what I love about John the Baptist? He has no codependency issues. None. He doesn't say to himself, hey, John and Andrew, I know Jesus has come, and, and I know he's the savior of the world, but I really need you guys to follow me. I get something out of it. I get a sense of significance out of it. I get a sense of security out of it, because I look at you guys, and I'm like, okay, maybe I'm not such a bum, because I got some guys that are following me. John the Baptist has no codependency issues. John the Baptist, out of Jesus, in my opinion, is the most secure individual in the entire Bible. Why? Because he doesn't give a rip what he wears. He doesn't give a rip what he looks like, and he doesn't give a rip what you think about what he eats. And at the same time, he has no codependency issues. He's like, I don't need you guys to follow me for me to know who I am. I don't need you guys to follow me to know what my purpose is. It's none. He understands that his one objective is to point people to who their savior is. But we struggle with that, don't we? We can have a tendency to say, man, that friend, that friend's my savior. The problem is, is your friend can never be your lamb of God. My boyfriend, my girlfriend, they're my savior. The problem is they can never be your lamb of God. My spouse. Oh, I need my spouse to be my savior. The problem is, is you're putting your spouse on a pedestal that they can only fail you. Why? Because they can never be your lamb of God. Ah, oh, my boss. 
I need my boss to see what I'm doing. I need to see my boss give me value. I need to see my boss give me affirmation. I need my boss to see how hard I'm working. Wait a minute, your boss can never be your Lamb of God. Oh, my mentor. My mentor, the person who's invested in me, the person who's, who, who, has, who has literally poured everything that he or she knows into my life, they're my savior. But the problem is they can never be your lamb of God. I love how John the Baptist models what our responsibility is, whether you're a friend, whether you're a spouse, whether you're a parent, whether you're a boss, whether you're an employer, whether you're a mentor, regardless of what your role is. You know what my role is? Is to point people to who their Savior is. To point people away from me and to Jesus. And oh, if we would get that, we would, we would set the expectation where it should be. Because when you think that I'm your savior, you're gonna be sorely disappointed. I love my wife to death. I married up. And every guy should say yes to that. I married up. She's not my savior. She cannot give me what I need she not, cannot be for me what Jesus can be. And this morning, what we need to do, first of all, before we go to look at any of the other thing, reasons why Jesus is worth following in this passage of scripture, is we've gotta start at the most important place that John reminds his disciples of, that Jesus is worth following. He wants you to come and see and grow in your understanding that he is your savior. He has saved you from your sins. He is the source of your strength. He is the source of your significance. He is the source of your security. Jesus is your savior. And that's why he's worth following. And we could close our Bibles and sing a song and leave this place and that would be enough reasons. But actually this passage of scripture gives us more because here's the second reason Jesus is worth following. It's found in verses 38 and 39. He desires to abide with you. Like Jesus actually wants to spend time with you. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand this morning, but you may have had someone this week tell you, I don't wanna be around you. I don't wanna be around you right now. But what, we, what I see in verses 38 and 39 in an applicational way is that Jesus wants to abide with me. Here's why I say that. Because look at what Jesus does in this interaction with John and Andrew. He sees them following. After all, John the Baptist tells them to do so. Like, hey, you don't need to be dependent upon me, and I'm not dependent upon you. Like, go follow Jesus. He's here now. And so they start to do that. And what does Jesus ask of John and Andrew? He says, what are you seeking? Not like, hey, what's up? How you doing? How was your day? He goes to an existential question, a deep question. What are you seeking? Can we just believe the Bible for what it is, that it's God's word speaking to us, not just who it was written, originally written to? Because that's what Jesus is asking you today. What are you seeking? What are you seeking today? 
And I feel so, my self-esteem is so low. And I, I, I just, I need someone to give me some self-worth. What are you seeking? Man, I hope Jesus comes through for me this week. Is that what you're seeking? I think Jesus, Jesus is the best question asker of all time. Because he gets right to the heart. Because really what he's saying through that question to John and Andrew, what are you seeking? He's saying, who do you believe me to be? Because they obviously recognize that he's the Messiah, the promised one from the Old Testament. So I wonder when Jesus asked that question, if he asked it because they're like, hey, uh, John and Andrew, do you think that I'm going to overthrow Rome right now? Like, are you wanting me to be your savior politically? Are you wanting me to be your savior nationally? What are you seeking? Ask yourself that question right now. What are you seeking of Jesus? And don't be afraid to be honest. He knows it anyway. See, that's what I want you to get from as we walk through the book of John, you're gonna see over and over again that Jesus is not intimidated by people's questions. He's not intimidated by your questions. Say, what I'm seeking right now is I just want life to be easy. And Jesus is not like, oh my goodness, I've never heard that one before. Be honest. Now what I find interesting is that John and Andrew don't even answer his question. They're just like, well, where are you staying, Jesus? Isn't that oftentimes our response when people ask a question we don't want to answer? We ask a question to their question. It's a great debate tool, right? Like, I don't know if John and Andrew ever wondered about going into politics, but they would have been great. Answer a question with a question. But that's what they do. Well, you know why I don't think they answered this question, by the way? I mean, we don't know for sure. We'll never know. Maybe you want to jot that down in your memory to ask when you're with John and Andrew in heaven one day. But probably because they didn't have the answer. And Jesus was okay with that. Because what they ask of Jesus is, Jesus, where are you staying? And I asked myself as I was studying this this week and reading on this, this week on my own, I thought, what a strange question to ask. Where are you staying, Jesus. But think about it. What do we oftentimes determine someone's significance after? By where they're staying or what they have. So they're really wondering, is Jesus really who he says he is? So if the Messiah, God in the flesh, has come, then he's obviously got to be staying somewhere pretty posh and pretty significant. So Jesus, where are you staying? Where's your significance? Show it to us. But I love how Jesus answers. He doesn't answer him with a question. You know what he does? What does he say? He says, hey, I want you to come and you'll see. Come and see. Guys, I want you to spend time with me. It says actually, once again there, that it says that they came and they saw where he was staying, where he, and then, and then it says, and they stayed with him that day. So it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. So evidently they stayed with him all night. It doesn't say where they stayed. It doesn't say they checked into the Hotel Jerusalem. 
Like, we know that it says that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head, so evidently Jesus moved around a lot. He didn't have a home that he just walked into and, you know, hung out and relaxed. Like, he didn't have anything of significance on this earth. But you know what John and Andrew got to see as they came and saw? They got to see the person of who Jesus was. And Jesus actually said to them, I want you to come and see. I want you to stay with me. Well, what does Jesus ask of us today? Revelation 3.20, we've said this verse over and over again in Revelation 3.20. I stand at the door And Jesus is knocking, and he wants you to open the door, and he wants you to let him in. You want to know one of the most intimate things that you can do is to let someone in your home. Not going to ask you to raise your hand about when's the last time you've actually invited, not family members, but people who weren't your family into your home. And what you will affirm is it's a very intimate thing because what are all the questions that are going through your mind when you're thinking about doing this? Especially if you're more introverted. What are they gonna think of my furniture? What are they gonna think of my house? What are they gonna think about what I cook? What are they gonna think about my, my guest bathroom? What are they gonna think about all those things? And they're gonna wanna judge me based on those things. That's why so often we don't invite people into our home because it's a very intimate thing. It's interesting you know, I haven't lived in North Carolina, but it'll be Jan- in January, it'll be five years. First time I've ever lived in the South. Before that, spent 10 years in Naples, Florida. Grew up in Orlando, but 10 years in Naples, Florida when I was a pastor. Here's what I found out about people from Naples. They value a lot where they stay. No doubt. But here's what I found. They're not like super friendly from the jump. Like, you know, I remember even when our kids were little, I mean, when we moved to Naples, Lily was three and Lucas was three months old and we'd be pushing them around Walmart or Home Depot or wherever it was and it was interesting how many dirty looks we got from people because we were bothering them because we were in their way. No, like, how cute is your kids? Like, God, you know, bless your heart like it is here. Like, none of that. Here's what I found living 10 years in Naples and doing ministry. The proverbial relational wall is very high from the jump. But once you get over that first relational wall, you're pretty much in. Then I moved to North Carolina, and here's what I figured out. Every, by the way, let me make a caveat. Everyone in this room and watching online is exempt from what I'm about to say, okay? I made myself safe now. <laughs> here's what I found. For the first time when we moved to North Carolina, before that, we would move into a neighborhood and, we, and Lori would make cookies and we'd go to our neighbor's house and deliver the cookies to welcome ourselves to the neighborhood. For the first time ever, we moved into our house. We actually had people coming and doing that for us. I was blown away. I was like, holy cow, the South really is as friendly as they say. And then I found out that these people who gave me cookies, who like actually said, I made this for you, you don't know me, you can eat it, wouldn't say hello to me when Lori and I would walk down our street. I was literally, before we got a dog anyway, like I would literally say to Lori, I must, the word must be out, they must have done their research, they realize I'm a pastor, that's why nobody wants to come talk to us. But I was like, they made us cookies. Here's what I found out. The, the first relational wall in Winston-Salem is about yay big. Like everybody's friendly. Like everybody waves to me in my neighborhood when I drive in. 
You want to have a conversation with me, but you'll wave. I'll be in the store, people will talk to me, carry on a conversation. Say all the phrases that I've learned mean you're a moron when really they're saying, when they're saying bless your heart, that's what they all I mean. All of those different types of things. But you know what I've found? That re- first relational wall is very, very low. But there's another wall. And that's people letting you into their home. Like all of a sudden then it gets real. Just differences in culture. Why? Because when you invite someone in your home, it's a pretty intimate thing. Now, how do you remember Publishers Clearinghouse? Raise your hand. Remember that? I knew that when I asked that question, about half of you would not. Like, I actually had to Google whether that still existed. I remember my grandmother, all four foot and 11 of her, my Puerto Rican grandmother used to get Publishers Clearinghouse in the mail all the time. And when I would go over there, she would literally think she won every time. Because they're just amazing at wording things in such a way that you think you won when you really won nothing. You just need to buy more stuff. But they were amazing at that. I remember she was like, oh, I'm gonna pay for college. I'm gonna get you a car, all that. And I'm like, Grandma, you won nothing. But you know, I don't know what exists now. If there's something new and hip that anyone under 40 would know, you know, that's different than Publishers Clearance. But here's what I know. If someone showed up at your doorstep with a check, you would let them in. Look at this guy. I mean, he looks like he rolled out of bed. Like, it looked like, like I'm gonna throw on a t-shirt real quick. He wasn't thinking, what's my house look like? What do I look like? What am I wearing? Nothing. He's like, come on in, why? Because they've got a million dollars they wanna give him. Notice that what the person was offering is a motivator to let them in their house. And what we need to bring ourselves back to as followers of Jesus Christ, or you're here today and you've never done that, is you have a Savior who is knocking at your door, who is saying, I want to abide with you. And some of us are not opening up the door because we're like, man, I got to get my act together. Oh, I'm thinking it's going to cost me too much. I'm struggling to believe that you're worth following anymore. And Jesus is literally standing there saying, I want to give you so much and I want to be so much for you and I want to provide what you've been longing for in every other thing but I'm standing at the door and knocking and I'm saying to you would you just come and see that I want to stay with you see the reason why I said the second reason is he wants to abide with you is that that phrase that word staying and stayed is the same word that we get the word abide from Jesus says, hey, come and see. Abide with me. And obviously what happened from four o'clock to the next day radically changed John and Andrew's perception of Jesus because they follow him for the rest of their days. Here's the third thing. It's found in verses 40 through 42. Third reason Jesus is worth following, he sees you for who you will become rather than who you are right now. Some of you need to remind yourselves of that. Some of you need to realize that in a profound way for the first time in your life, that Jesus sees you for who you will become, not who you are right now. Here's why I say that. Because in verses 40 through 42, Andrew goes and gets his brother Simon. 
And Simon comes to Jesus, and Jesus gives Simon a new name. He says, your name now is Cephas, which means Peter, which literally means rock. I mean, it's the only time of all the disciples that Jesus gives a new name to someone who wants to follow him. He doesn't do that with John or Andrew. He doesn't do that with Philip. He doesn't do that with Nathaniel, as we're going to see here in a little bit. He doesn't do that with any other disciple. But he does that with Simon, who is now called Cephas or Peter. You know what that shows me? Jesus' invitation to you is unique to you because he sees you. If we were to go around and share all of our stories of how we came to realize that Jesus was our Savior, they would be very unique. Mine would be different than yours and yours would be different than mine. And in the uniqueness of our stories, what that drives home is Jesus sees you. He doesn't look out and see a crowd. He sees every individual face. He sees you, he sees me, and he sees me in a way that nobody else does. And he sees me, not even who I am right now, but he sees me and who I will become. Because let me tell you something, the work from John 1 when Peter first meets Jesus to what we find in Acts 2 when Peter gives a rock star of a message on the start of the church, let me tell you, the time in between there, Jesus had a lot of work to do in Peter. And he doesn't say, hey, Hey, Simon, I'm going to change your name to Peter. But you know what? You're going to ask a lot of dumb questions. And you're going to speak out of turn a bunch. And you're even going to betray me in my most vulnerable spot. But he never says that to Simon. He says, Simon, you are going to be a rock in building my kingdom. Why? Because Jesus saw Peter for who he would become rather than who he was in that moment. And some of us need to claim that truth. The reason why Jesus is worth following is because he sees you in a way that nobody else does. You will see me through my failures, and I will see you through your failures as much as I try not to. But that's our human nature because we're sinful, we're not perfect. I'm going to have to get over hurt of people who do things to me. And people are going to have to get over hurt of what I do to them because of my sinfulness. And it's going to be hard for us to look past some of those things that people do, even though that is a reality that can be true in our lives. But what I want you to understand is Jesus is different than you and me. He's different from any person that you want to look to as your Savior. Why? Because he sees you for who you will become. That's called the process of our salvation. We're justified, declared innocent when I put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I am in a process of being sanctified and growing in my relationship with Jesus and saying no, no, no more and more to sin and saying yes to Jesus more and more through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens as I live on this earth. But there is coming a day where I will pass from this life to the next and I will be experiencing my glorification where there will be no more sin in my life. I will be who Jesus made me to be, who designed me to be all the way back in Eden. That's who I will be one day. And listen, to me that's how Jesus sees you right now I don't know about you but I want to follow that 
And there's times in my life where I doubt it, and there's times in my life where I struggle to believe it. There's times in my life when I want to define myself by something else other than what Jesus sees me to be. But that's why Jesus constantly says to me, come and see. Come and see that I'm worth following. Here's the last thing and we'll be done. Jesus is worth following because in verse 43 through 51, here's what I see. He welcomes and speaks hope to my, to your unbelief. Here's why I say that. Notice you find Philip. Like, Philip's got the, like, the least dramatic story of following Jesus of anybody in these verses. Like, Philip just sees Jesus, and Jesus is like, follow me, Philip. And Philip's like, I'm in. No argument. No reasons why I shouldn't. No questions asked. I'm in. Which is interesting, by the way, that that term follow me that Jesus gives literally means keep following me. Like my following Jesus, my discipleship with Jesus, my abiding with Jesus isn't a one-time deal. It's a constant thing that happens in my life. And Philip's so jazzed about finally following Jesus and the person that he's following is he goes and he tells Nathaniel. But unfortunately, Nathaniel doesn't have quite the same response as Philip. Because Philip's telling, hey, remember everything that's mentioned in the, in the prophets about who Jesus is? Well, he's come, Nathaniel. Like, like, he's come. He's of Nazareth. And Nathaniel, as we already read, says, well, man, what good can come out of Nazareth? But notice Philip's response. Do you see it there in, this, in these verses? Philip doesn't say, well, let's have an argument about why you're wrong and I'm right. Well, let's go back and let's look at it in the Old Testament. Let's actually see what God's word says to show that you're not right. You know what he says? Come and see, Philip. Come and see, Nathaniel. It's not my job to get in an argument with me. It's not my job to prove who Jesus is to you. Just come and see. And I love how when Nathaniel comes to Jesus, that Jesus knows exactly what Nathaniel needs. Remember when I said his invitation to you is personal? Because he says to Nathaniel something different than he said to John or Andrew or Simon Peter or Philip. He says, Hey, Nathaniel, you're, you're an Israelite who there is no deceit. And Nathaniel's response is, Well, how do you know who I am? And he says, hey, I saw you under a fig tree before you came to me. Here's what I love. That's just a, such a simple statement. Now, it's, it's significant because obviously Jesus was showing his omniscience that he was all-knowing. But, Phil, I mean, Nathaniel goes from this antagonistic, cynical person that we read. He's like, I'm in. You saw me under a fig tree. I'm willing to leave everything, Jesus, and follow you. I don't know if you're going to ask where you're staying. I'm in. And I love, that's why I said I love Jesus' response here. Because I saw you under a fig tree, Nathaniel. Oh, Nathaniel, you're going to see so many greater things. See, when I read this passage of Scripture, here's what spoke to my heart as I read it. When I think about, man, Jesus welcomes my unbelief. Like he doesn't chastise Nathaniel. He doesn't rebuke him. He welcomes it, and he speaks hope to it. Nathaniel, you're going to see some awesome things that's going to root your belief in me way more than just you, me seeing you under a fig tree. 
You know why? Because I know what you're gonna encounter and that, if you're only relying on that, you're gonna really struggle. See, some of us right now, I wonder if we're like Philip and there's someone in our life that we are literally having unbelief that Jesus can't get a hold of their heart. And we could give every reason why, and we could say, man, man, they've done this, they have, they live this way, they have these objections, they're so hard to who Jesus is, they want to have nothing to do with him. And so where you're struggling in your unbelief and having hope is that Jesus can actually get a hold of that person. I don't know if it's a friend, I don't know if it's a spouse, I don't know if it's a, whatever relationship it is, obviously you do. But you know, when I was reading this pastor's scripture, it reminded me that I so often can categorize people as ones that are ready for the gospel and ones that are far from it. And the ones that I deem in my brain as if I'm God that are far from it, you know what I have a tendency to do? To not even bring up Jesus to them. That's happened in my life. I'm like, man, this, I've even had people reach out to me and say, hey, you're the pastor at Salem Chapel, what time are your services? And I'm thinking to myself, I know they got this going on in their life, they're living this way, they have these objections, I've already talked to them about it. I'm not sure that they even are ready to receive what we're offering here. I'm not sure I'm ready to begin to be faced with the questions that they will ask me. And when I read this passage of scripture, even this week, you know where I was rebuked? Jesus saying, that's not your job, Johnny. Your job is to say to them, come and see. Come and see. Jesus is the one who says, follow me. Jesus is the one who goes and finds. My job it's just to say, come and see. Now, here's the last thing I want you to see about welcoming. Jesus being welcome to receive your unbelief and speak hope into it. Is because when Jesus says to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, you're going to follow me because you saw me under fig tree as awesome as that was. Nathaniel, I want you to understand that I've got so much greater things that I'm going to do that are going to root your faith in me. And I think oftentimes what can happen in our lives is we struggle with having hope in what God will do in our future. See, we've submitted enough and understand enough and as amazing as it is and it's an important part of our sanctification and us becoming more like Jesus and abiding with him for us to see how God reframes and reshapes our past the things that have been done to us, the things that we have done to others, and to see how God has used that sin, whether done to us or us doing it to someone else, and he's reshaped it and he's worked it for good, and we can say, Lord, that's a fig tree moment in my life. That's a moment in my life where I'm like, Jesus, I wanna follow you. But here's what happens, the longer we live life, is we struggle, the more and more that we live life and seeing Jesus intervene and work things that ex we experience in this broken world is we can look and we can say, but Jesus, I'm afraid for the future. Jesus, I'm scared about what will happen in the future. Jesus, I'm struggling to believe that you're a God who's gonna let me down and by letting me down, you're, that's what you're gonna use to teach me more about you. And what we can do is we can hedge our bets with Jesus. 
And we can say, I got to be prepared this time that I don't get hit blindsided with an uppercut of this broken world. And so I'm going to manage my expectations of Jesus. I'm going to pray for the Lord to work. I'm going to pray for me to see greater things. But I'm also going to set myself up to thinking, yeah, but Jesus also probably won't. And I'm here to say to you this morning, and I'm here to say to my own soul, because I battle that too. is Jesus wants to speak hope into your unbelief. Jesus is not a savior who lives in the past. So if you have enough, if you have enough uh, humility to have been able to look into your life and say, Lord, that didn't work out the way that I wanted, but enough time has passed and enough humility has been exercised to where I can see that you worked it in a way that though I didn't want it that way, Lord, it was your best. That if I can see that in the moments of my past over here, then why would I allow my unbelief to say that your best work, God, in my life was done in the past rather than seeing, God, you have so many things in my life that you want to do that's even greater than what you have done in my past. What Jesus said to me this week is, Johnny, don't be satisfied to just live in the fig tree moments, but allow yourself to have enough belief that I have so many greater things to do in your future. And God is saying that to you as much as he says that to me. Why? Because our Savior is a gracious king who wants you to see, who wants you to come, who wants you to grow in understanding that he is worth following. He's worth it. And I have to bring myself back to that over and over again. Why? Because I live in a world that's going to cause me to experience the cost of following Jesus. But if all I do is concentrate on the cost and not the worth, I'm going to struggle. What every, just everyone to close their eyes and let's just, let's just stop for a moment as the band comes out and the piano begins to play and let's just Let's just stop and let's take whatever it is, whatever unbelief it is, whatever hurt it is, whatever skepticism it is, whatever cynicism there is, right now in your relationship with Jesus. And let's just give it to him. Let's just be honest. He's asking, what are you seeking? Johnny, what are you seeking? Matt, what are you seeking? Susie, what are you seeking? And Jesus, it's okay that you don't even know how to answer that yet. Because Jesus is about you coming and seeing. He knows you're not who you will become yet. He's not threatened by that. He's not overwhelmed by that. Does he want you to stay where you are? No, but God in his grace, 
Jesus Christ in his grace, the Holy Spirit in his grace is not going to allow you to stay there. Because he is destined for you greater things. He's determined and has predestined for you to see that he's worth following. He just wants you to come and see. He just wants you to abide with him. He just wants you to spend time with him. So as we sing this song about the goodness of God, let us remind ourselves of that reality. Because we gotta remind ourselves of the worth if we're gonna be willing to pay the cost. Lord, I thank you that you are worth following today. Lord, I thank you for what you showed me me this week. Lord, I thank you for what you have in the past and you are right now and what you will do and continually removing the scales from our proverbial eyes so that we will grow as we come and as we see that you are a good and a gracious and a God worth following. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this morning?